On today's episode, Dave interviews screenwriter Carl Gottlieb. Carl's credits include The Odd Couple, The Jerk, and Jaws. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. Because <laughs> I'm looking at these guys going, well, they're not shaved. I'm going to be the guy that's shaved. They, they, my, my dad was enamored of a radio comic named uh, Henry Morgan. Who's but not the Henry Morgan that we know. Um, was it Harry Morgan, I'm thinking? Go no, ahead. you're thinking of Harry Morgan. Yeah. No, Henry, Henry Morgan was a radio personnel, contemporary of Fred Allen's. Mm-hmm. And his sponsor was Schick Razor Blades. Push, pull, click, click, change blades that quick. <laughs> And pal injector razors. Mm-hmm. And Henry Morgan said my father loved it. He said, uh, you know, I, I saved, uh, using the, my pal injector blade, I saved three minutes shaving this morning. So I figured with the time I saved, I'd take another shave, save some more time. <laughs> and I shaved some more. <laughs> and by lunchtime, I'd saved up enough time to go to the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Matthew Humor. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Humor. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Did you grow up? New York City. You grew up in New York City. Yeah. And when did you move out of here? God, I was in my 20s. I just finished my time in the Army. Uh-huh. And what, part, what, what, what Army were you in? US you were Army. in the Army. I was in the Army. I was a draftee back in 1961. They still did that. Uh-huh, right. You know, you, no, not even a lottery. Just, you know, you turned... Well, in my case, I finished college, so whatever exemption I had as right. being a college student was over. Right. And then I, uh, I wound up uh, getting drafted. You know, I mean, you, if you were healthy, you took a physical. You, you could go through a lot of contortions to avoid it. You could start you know, seeing a psychiatrist. You could mm-hmm. say you were out, you know, outrageously gay, but in 1961, that wasn't quite so easy no. to do. Or you could be... Or you could fake some physical symptoms, but they were, they were looking for that. And I figured, you know, everybody in my generation, you know, kind of went at one time or another. It was peacetime. You the thought, worst, yeah, right. The, the, the worst that could happen was, was you'd be sent to some remote base in Korea, you know, right. and just, you know, because that's not be over. Out but I was, you know, college educated, so I was a company clerk. But I, <clears throat> I did go to the equivalent of, of limbo. Uh, I did about a year and a half at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, mm-hmm. which is where they train combat engineers and basic training infantry. Right. And it's in the middle of no fucking where. I mean, it was just off Route 66, mm-hmm. uh, but some midway between St. Louis and Joplin. Mm-hmm. And that, How long were you in the Army? Two years. Just two that, years? That was, yeah. You lucked out. Well, there, there was, uh, in those days, uh, you... You had a six-month option where you could go in the you could go to training. You'd do six months of active duty, then you have to go to meetings once a week for the next three years or mm-hmm. four years and be in the active reserves. Right. But there was no chance of being mobilized or deployed because where would you go? I mean, we had like ten thousand troops in Vietnam at that time. Right. And it was all elite special forces and you know, yeah, it's before we really Rangers got and guys like that. Right. Green Berets. Um, so no, I wasn't that. <laughs> well, what, you, what brought you out here? I mean, you just wanted... Well, uh, no, I, I was, uh, I was uh, you know, stranded in Missouri. And just by pure happenstance, my roommate uh, in, from New York and guy who I'd gone to college with uh, got a job acting in an improvisational comedy show called The Compass Theater. Right, who was that? Who was that? One of the ancestors of the Second City. Yeah, sure. And they were they had a company in St. Louis, right? 
and they were they were booked there for an open-ended run. So he was there like four or five months. So every weekend I would you know zip down to get a, get a weekend pass. Larry he? Hankin. Larry uh, Hankin. I yeah. know Larry Hankin. Yeah. I did a movie with Larry Hankin. Oh, okay. One of Larry Hankin's movies. Oh, all right. Then you know Larry. Yeah. So Larry, you know, Larry was in St. Louis. So I'd go and hang out with him and right. Jack Burns and a couple other members of the company, and, mm -hmm. and you know, kind of keep a toe in show business. And then he, the show closed. He went to Second City in Chicago. Larry. And then, Larry did, and then got hired to go to uh, San Francisco to open the committee, which was just just starting. Right. Uh, and in the meanwhile, I was a, a finalist in the All Army Entertainment Contest because I was still in show business. <laughs> I, did, I had a specialty, a, a duo comedy act that I ripped off from Larry's nightclub act. I mean, I told him, but you know, I just. I need a ticket out of there. And at the end of the All-Army Entertainment Contest, in which uh, we came in second or third, uh, we got a, like a two-week uh, leave. So Larry was in, in San Francisco with this new theater company that was going great guns. They had just opened. Why was it? Uh, it was like April or June. It was June or July of 63. Mm -hmm. So I, I went out to San Francisco. I hung out with the company. I did... So they did a, a, a road date while I was with them, and I was just, my expertise in those days was I was a legit stage manager. That's mm -hmm. what I did, you know, in college and in Greenwich Village and coffee house, cabaret theaters, things like that. So I, as a, a stage manager, I helped, and they needed a stage manager. So they said, "When are you getting out of the army?" I said, "You know, either September or November, depending on if my early application to the application for early release is approved." Because I was a company clerk, I knew the regulations. So I got out of the army, you know, a few months early, and I went out to San Francisco and signed on as stage manager. And then that gig lasted for the committee was there for ten years. I right. was there for five in San Francisco, first as a stage manager and then a director. Then I left for a season, went to New York, and I came back as an actor in the company in '66 with Howard Hessman. Right. Peter Bonners and some other people. Right. And then Howard Hessman changed his name or he had a stage name? Like Steve yeah. Steve Sturdy or Don Sturdy. Don Sturdy. <laughs> the, Don Sturdy. Don Sturdy. It was from a uh, it was uh, I guess a a, a, a a LSD name. I mean sometimes when you were tripping you and it was from a, a 1920s boys book of the uh -huh. boys adventure yarns called you know um, his that his particular copy, which he had found on a bookshelf in the middle of a trip, was Don Sturdy and the Big Snake Hunters. <laughs> <laughs> so he thought he'd like to be Donald M. Sturdy. Oh, wow. oh, so so he was he was sturdy for a long time. Did you and, know him as sturdy, or yeah. you knew him? Well, yeah. I I mean I knew him. As, he was he replaced me as stage manager. Oh okay. And then the two of us came back as actors in '66. Mm -hmm. And then in '68, the show opened in Los Angeles, and we were a big hit here. Mm -hmm. Where did it? Where did it run here? Where at was the, it? At the Tiffany Theater up on the Strip. Got it. When right. that was a 350 seat theater, it right. was a, had just been converted from a movie house to a legit house, mm -hmm. and we played there. We did 13 shows a week there. That's what I read. I read that you guys did 13 shows a week, and I'm looking at this, this when I was when I was on the main stage in Second City, we did eight shows a week, and I'm thinking 13 shows a week, two a night, you know, uh, oh, two, Tuesday through Sunday, you know, eight o'clock, ten o'clock. Uh huh. And three shows on uh, on Saturday. Why do you think? Why do you? Because <clears throat> all the people, uh, uh, 
all the people that I talk to that are committee people, uh, alumni, they're all saying, yeah, somebody's got to write a, write, a, write a book about it or somebody's got to, you know, because why, why hasn't that exploded? Because it really was the centerpiece, they're the foundation, the basis of so much. Yeah. Um, well, it was, you know, the Second City had the, uh, you know, wherewithal in the management to stay open. Right. And the committee closed in, I think, 73. It stayed open. It, it stayed kind of in business for the next few years doing road dates and kind of, you know, mm -hmm. like, like Second City Touring Company gigs. Right. But the theater itself uh, was mismanaged, and after about 10 years, uh, the show, you know, the show just closed and everybody moved on. A group of us had come to LA and were starting to work in television and movies, mm -hmm. so there was, you know, no no looking back. And so it doesn't occupy, except to people who study the form. Right. Uh, they know what we did, but uh, like all ephemera, it was all live performance, and you can't bottle improvisation. You can't even. There are, you know, there are. Films and tapes. There's one we we did make a movie that was filmed at the theater. Jeffrey it, Sweet told me about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I just found my VHS copy. I've got to make a a very good digital copy somehow. I have to find somebody who does it. What's it called? What's a session it? with the committee. Right, right. Uh, and uh, I mean that 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 became uh, much like Second City. That became my family. Right. Uh, and. There's still, I mean, we still meet every month or so at farmers market for a lunch or you know, ten or eight or ten of us, whoever you know, whoever's in town. Right. Uh, we had lunch just the other day with with Larry and mm -hmm. some other people. Will you tell Larry I said hello? I will. Next time yeah, you see yeah him? I will. Of course. Because I just, I, I just love him, and he's one of those people. And, and that was one of the things I kept look like that that kept coming back to me when I was going through your history and. Um, uh, just like what you've done and, and to do a little research is what gets me is you you kept evolving and moving your art kept evolving yeah. and moving you kept going I'm doing this but now I'm doing this and now I'm doing this and now I'm doing this it seems to me that you never stop saying yes to projects right the, the, my, there's there's two models and I, I call it the Dustin Hoffman and Terry Garr right after the graduate Dustin went through what I guess he got paid fifty thousand dollars for being in that movie, mm -hmm. and he would not take another, you know, confused college, you know, graduate. He he did. did they, of course, they wanted to type him. He was the perfect, you know, made such a splash in that movie that he waited for God almost two years before he made uh, Midnight Cowboy, right? Which was you know. As so far different. as it could go. Oh my from, God! But he he kept doing. Wasn't he doing Broadway? or Was he still out here? Well, he was doing like off Broadway. I mean, he was right. a starving actor. I mean, right. he was not working. I mean, he does some commercials from that period. I mm -hmm. mean, he he worked a little bit, but not much. Right. And the character in Tootsie is kind of a distillation yes. of that guy. Yes. Until he got Midnight Cowboy, and that established him, and then he was a star forever after. And but he was always very picky about his scripts. And I remember I, I was. Uh, Considered to do a rewrite on uh, Straight Time mm -hmm. that he did, uh, and I remember meeting with him and Ulu Grossbard, and, and then he was going to direct it, so Ulu was out of the picture, and he nitpicked the script to death. And uh, you know, it's actually, I'm, I'm on one hand, I, I would have liked to have done that script, but on the other hand, it would have been, at the time, it would have been painful. Right. 
So he, he's, you know, very script-centric, job-oriented thing. The Terry Gar model, Terry was, came from vaudeville background. Wait, 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 wait. Terry Gard came from vaudeville background? Yeah. Like as a child? Her, her dad was a famous vaudeville comedian named Eddie Gar, mm -hmm. who was brought out to, con uh, to Paramount under contract in the 40s, uh -huh. or, or late 40s, early 50s. Really? That late? Yeah. When the, when the, but the studio still had contract players. He right, came, of course. He came out as a contract player mm -hmm. with his wife, who was an ex-Corrine, a hoofer. Uh -huh. And they, because he had a contract, and they were, he, he did a couple of parts in B pictures. They were bringing him along as a contract player. Mm -hmm. Terry, Terry's brother was born, then Terry, I think she has two siblings, or one. And then her father died abruptly of a heart attack in his late 40s, early 50s, so mm -hmm. her mom was left to bring up the kids. Mm -hmm. So Terry took dancing lessons and acting lessons and was, you know, uh, essentially in show business. And at, at the time, I'm, you know, I remember meeting her on her 21st birthday. And... She must have been charming on her 21st birthday. <laughs> I can tell you that she cut a swath. Um, and, you know, all the uh, uh, L.A. artists of the time, Ed Ruscha, Billy Al Bankston, she has a priceless collection of L.A. art, of guys who would just create art for her and give it to her. Oh. And there's notebooks from when John Lennon took acid at her house. And, you know, there was... Uh, she she knew everybody and everybody loved her, mm -hmm. including me. Right. Um, uh, so ter Terry went to work as a hoofer, and her first break was in the L.A. production of West Side Story that David Winters choreographed. Because mm -hmm. she was one of the David Winter dancers, and you can see them on old kinescopes of Shindig and Hullabaloo. Wow! And wow! Wow! Terry wow, wow! And there's a there's a great little uh, short of her. I think Tom Schiller made it. Um, it's called Waiting for the Bus. It's on. It's a YouTube clip. Just go mm -hmm. look up Terry Gar. Mm -hmm. um, Who you you did you cast her in uh, the Absent Minded Waiter? Or yes. Did, yeah. Or, yeah. 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 She's so, perfect in that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we uh, um, and Terry, after she started working as an actress, because you know, she was a dancer first, then they gave her lines, and she was that really rare. Uh, thing which was you know a cute blonde who was funny who really understood comedy. She really understood comedy. So for a while she was the queen of commercials. I mean, mm -hmm. She did the young perky housewife for you know 10, 15 national spots running. Mm -hmm. Put her brother through med school. Oh my God. And then uh, she got a small part in, in the monkeys movie and then she you know, but she never turned down a job. That's the difference between the that's the Dustin Hoffman yeah, and yeah. Terry Gar. Terry Gar took every job that came down the pike. Right. And you know some of them are completely forgettable. Right. Some of them, you know, just obscure movies with Richard Dreyfuss. You know, where the where he's a degenerate gambler. And then there was you know Tootsie and Young Frankenstein. Right. Her work in Young hits. Frankenstein is is just so beautiful to yeah. watch. Oh yeah. So beautiful to watch. But you've never you you've been working for, I mean you, you keep working and you keep taking on projects and it seems like. What 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 is it that drives you with that? Well, in, uh, I, I'm kind of on the Terry Gar model. If you know, if if work is better than not work, right? And usually, and one of the reasons I'm probably not a millionaire is uh, that rather than like when I was in television, you know, as as variety television was 
dying. Right. It was easy to make the switch to sitcoms. You know, I was a story editor on The Odd Couple. Right. You also did, you worked with the Smothers Brothers. Yeah. And I, and I did For many a, years. Comedy, uh, comedy variety with the Smothers. The last, right. Basically the last season and the Glenn Campbell summer show, which they produced. And I love the Glenn Campbell summer oh, it was, show. It was a great show. It was just a great show. So we did all, you know, uh, so my criterion for judging a job was A, you know, is it immediate? Does it pay money? And then, <laughs> right. And and then you know, after that, I asked myself, have I done this before or mm-hmm. not? And if I've done it before, I go, well, you know, what else is there? And there was a succession of you know jobs that were each different from the other. I was doing variety uh, sketch, you know, Smothers Brothers Television. Then mm-hmm. I did a music comedy show called The Music Scene, which was a Oh, the music scene. You yeah. Did, yeah, I saw that on IMDb. Yeah, I saw you which is a, was a, a odd little show. It ran just 17 episodes. And then uh, and then I did produce commercials for a couple of years. And then I got a job. I would still get jobs writing screenplays, uh, none produced until Jaws. But that was because, you know, Stephen and I had the same agent. That was, And that was your connection with, with, with Stephen. That yeah. was your connection with Steven Spielberg. Yeah, we had the same agent, and he knew me, and he knew me from the committee, and I mm-hmm. knew him as the... As How did the, you know him? How did he know you from the committee? Like, was, is he, I think is he, he had, a Bay Area guy? No, no, he's an <coughs> L.A. guy. I think he had seen mm-hmm. us down here. Because we, we performed again in the summer of 72. Mm-hmm. We reopened at the Tiffany for a limited run. Because so mm-hmm. the theater was vacant, and we were there. So we did, you know, I guess April to... Till November, we just you know whole summer season. There. Right. So he probably saw us then, and he was very much the new kid in town. My agent, uh, who was Mike Meadowboy, who was very mm-hmm. big on packaging clients, um, thought that we would be a, a good team because Stephen had you know wanted to direct you know comedies and you know the, the his first picture was Sugarland Express. Yes. Although it wasn't a comedy, it was you know. Uh, an interesting movie, you know. It wasn't as serious. No, right. Uh, and uh, so, and and I, I acted as you know, improvised a day player part in a couple of his TV movies. Mm-hmm. I did something evil and the Savage Report. <laughs> that was the pilot for Martin Landau and Barbara Bain following Mission their, Impossible. Mission Impossible, right, they, they, right. Right. They played a couple called Savage who who did uh, you know solve crimes. <laughs> so I did a couple of those. So Things are so that, different now in television. Oh yeah. Well, in those days they would think nothing of doing a ninety-minute movie of the week, which was a backdoor pilot. Right. And they grind you know they grind them out on a you know million eight budget. Right. They release them theatrically overseas. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Like Columbo, yeah. like that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, they would they would like splice three episodes of Columbo together and mm-hmm. turn it into a feature. Right. <laughs> But they also did that with Duel, which was Stephen's, you know, right. famous television movie. Well, that was with the truck. With the truck, right? And that film may establish his reputation as an auteur in Europe before he was a hit in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in Europe, everybody knew Duel, right? And was wondering what his next film was, right? You know, and then then came Jaws. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, he was like the new kid in town. We were going out on on you know pitching film scripts to the studios and we couldn't sell one because Stephen was locked in to direct. If we sold something, Stephen was going to direct it. Mm-hmm. And nobody wanted to take a chance to, on, on having the new, the new kid direct a of feature course. film. Of course. So we, we didn't sell anything. I, I, somewhere in my boxes I have a couple of 
treatments that we developed together. You know, one was a World War One flying movie, another mm -hmm. one was a so social comedy upset in the Catskills of all places. Do you do you ever go back to those things and say I'm going to uh, to refresh these and then pitch them again? Or? I've been, I think you know nowadays it's just harder and harder, and. A friend of mine who's a used to be a publicist and, and uh, is like me, semi-retired or retired until somebody hires us, mm -hmm. uh, said you should really do an article about like f four unsold scripts of yours. You know, the each one of which was ahead of the curve. Right. You know, every 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 time every script I've written on spec was rejected, uh -huh. and four or five years later. Became a hot, you know. Right, but by that time, it wasn't yours that was it picked. Was, right, it was, it was somebody else's. And, 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 and I wrote them before anybody was thinking that they would be useful. Well, um, the reason I ask the question is the World War One flying ace. I mean, certainly Stephen did. Uh, did he? He did he direct War Horse? He didn't write it, of course, but he directed War Horse. He directed War Horse, and he also developed something called Ace Eli and Roger of the Skies with Gloria uh, Will and Hike and Gloria Katz. They okay. Young screenwriting couple. That was one of the hot, unproduced scripts of the period, mm -hmm. and a bunch of us were friends. It was a much smaller community in those days, so mm -hmm. you could know most of the players, especially your peers. Right. So there was, you know, uh, John, uh, John Milius, Spielberg, George Lucas. Uh, you know, there was myself, Carol Eastman, we were all Mike Medavoy's clients. Mm -hmm. Mike Medavoy's class of 68. Mm -hmm. He signed all these, and Michelangelo Antonio. Oh he, my God, right. Uh, what, a, what a cross section of, of artists right yeah, there. Yeah, it was really, it was really a, a tribute to Medavoy's eye that he picked all those people. But you're also involved in a group of people that, again, I go back to like people saying yes to things and people mm -hmm. opening themselves up to and not having the blinkers on so that they're only seeing what's right here. But when you're hungry, and eager to be inspired, you're going to want to jump on whatever it is that you're going to be able yeah. to jump on. Mm -hmm. So your idea of uh, um, have I done that before uh, or not? Have I not done that before? You would you would go towards that thing that you had not done before right. without because it also it appears to me that you you uh, you never said well. Uh, I, there's no other way to say this other than you are courageous enough to say I'm going to try that. I don't. If I fail, I fail, and if I don't, if I fail, I fail, and if I don't fail, well then great. Yeah. Well, I, I knew I could write. I mean, I, that you know, I didn't have any doubts about that. Mm -hmm. And I had some skill as a producer, and I directed here and there just because I, I had to. And Absent-Minded Waiter was nominated for an Academy Award, right. which I directed. Right. And, and uh, written so, by Steve Martin. Based on a sketch that he wrote for the Gun Campbell show. That's right. He was also a writer on on, on uh, the Smothers Brothers. Too, yes, wasn't that's he? where we met. Right. We met on Glen Campbell. Then we did Smothers together. Right. Then he st he stayed on. Went. Uh, then we did a summer show called Wow, the Ken Berry Show. Mm -hmm. Ken Berry, what a talent. Yeah. Well, he had a, he had a, he headlined a variety show, old fashioned variety show. Mm -hmm. And he had a, a resident company of zanies. Mm -hmm. That was me, Steve Martin. Terry Garr, mm -hmm. Cheryl Ladd, then, then known as Cheryl Stoppelmore, mm -hmm. uh, a guy named Don Lane, who was like the Johnny Carson of Australia, mm -hmm. another comic named Billy Van, who was a very successful Canadian comic actor, mm -hmm. and another woman, I think, who I would be 
became a born again Christian and left the business. Mm -hmm. But we would, you know, and we and Ted Ziegler, and we would do, you know, sketches supporting Ken, and we do do big costume sketches. And well, I, I remember he did a dance thing that was really long with Carol Burnett. Uh, on the Carol Burnett show, mm. and it was his dancing ability was phenomenal. Yeah, well, did you ever see it? It's a classic clip, the one from Saturday Night Live, him and Gilda Radner. Uh, are you talking about Steve Martin? You're talking about Ken Berry. Dan hmm? You're talking about Steve Martin. Steve or Ken Martin. Barry? I'm talking about Ken Berry. Oh yeah, no, Ken, I'm Ken, talking about Ken Berry. Oh, Ken Berry was uh, he was you know old school. I mean, he could sing, he could tap dance. He right. Could, you know, he was uh, he had those skills that were you know even then. Not many young people were doing that stuff. No, he was he was the only guy his age who could do that. But Calvin, maybe, Calvin maybe Tommy, maybe Tommy Toon, or one or who was coming up at the time. But Tommy Toon was also known as a Broadway actor yeah, at that yeah. time. I don't know yeah. that Ken Berry was necessarily. I mean, no, Ken Berry, was, Ken Berry was a television person. Yeah, he was a television person. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. But uh, but the the thing with Steve Martin and Gilda Radner was just so beautiful. Oh God, yeah, makes you cry. It does make you cry, and that's the thing about. Uh, that's the thing about Gilda Radner, too. <laughs> but also looking at a lot of people that you work with, these people were also, I mean, the actors that you work with, the directors you work with, they knew, they know, they still know, they still know quality acting. So it's not just going, it's not just throwing something out that you're not going to see again. It's more of a, there's more of a depth to it. Uh, yeah, I was very, you know, lucky or maybe it was a smaller community at the time. I know it was a smaller community, but... It was a community. I mean, people, there was a lot of uh, cross-fertilization. You know, you'd do your friends' shows. Your friends would do your shows. Right. Uh, and you would tell each other about opportunities. You wouldn't hoard them. I mean, mm -hmm. if you, I, I remember I used to run, there were two actors, um, Ollie Clark and Michael Lerner. Mm -hmm. And the three of us were like the funny fat guys. And we'd constantly be up for, you know, we'd be constantly sitting on the couch in a, at a commercials audition or mm -hmm. a network audition and we would tell each other about other stuff you know the, the, you know they're casting over here and they're doing this over there nowadays you know people people don't share that information but I would, I, I, and, and hearing that it also watching uh, seeing the the amount of things that you've done also has a lot to do with people giving you the opportunities and you going into grabbing those opportunities yeah well I mean you you know the, the whole thing about uh, luck in show business is that a lot, a lot of people get lucky, and uh, if, if uh, in a perfect world, you're prepared for when luck picks you out of the lineup, you can deliver and either establish a reputation or make some connections or do some quality work that mm -hmm. leads to other work. I mean, every job I had uh, was mostly people I knew who knew me and who knew what I did, and it was very rare that I actually went for an interview with somebody I didn't know to sell myself as a writer or as an actor. So it's about um, the relationships that you've established. It was, and yeah, it was, it was a business, as, as always, it was a business of relationships, mm -hmm. personal histories, a community of actors and comedians. And there was an improvisational network of people, veterans from Second City and the mm -hmm. committee and the premise. Right. And when people like Joan Darling became directors, they would hire other improvisational actors, same as Mike Nichols would. I mean, everybody worked in uh, Catch-22. Uh, Richard Lester right. came to America and directed Petulia, mm -hmm. which is a total trip down memory lane because everybody I ever worked with in San Francisco is in that movie. 
most of them now deceased. Mm -hmm. It's the only movie in which the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and Big Brother appeared and play musical numbers. <laughs> and so you were in San Francisco at that time yeah. where there was all that was going on. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, but then, yes. Sex, and, drugs, and rock and roll. But it was also <laughs> sex, drugs, rock and roll and, and improvisation. Yes. Yeah, and was, the improv factor of all that just kept, for me, again, it makes me say yes to everything, and but also yes to the experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and that's the core of improvisation is agreement, as Paul Sills and Viola Spolin you know, first laid out, and then mm -hmm. David Shepard and uh, the, the guys who created the Playwrights Theater in Chicago. Right. One of them was an actor in the committee in the, the company I was in, a guy named Roger Bowen. Sure. Was at Playwrights Theater. Right. You know, before Paul Sills ever thought of improvising. And a great actor in yeah. MASH. And a great actor in MASH. Oh, my God. And his daughter was, uh, his daughter worked at Second City when I was over there. Oh. Um, for, I cannot remember her name, but boy, she was so nice. Yeah. And Roger Bowen is a great, was a great actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was wonderful. Yeah, left too early. He left too early. 60s? In his 60s? Yeah, if that. If that. Uh, yeah, yeah, because he died in, I don't know, in 1990-something? Yeah, I was at Second City, and I remember, yeah. I remember. I think that his, his daughter was there at that time, yeah. too. Um, but, boy, his, when I think about what he did in, in M.A.S.H., there's just a naturalism to his performance there. It's very funny. He was, with, you know, most of the scenes were with uh, Gary Berghoff, the only guy who made the transition to the TV series for some reason. Right. Inexplicable. Right. But Gary, Gary Berghoff was, a, you know, a self-serving, you know, self-obsessed actor. Sure. And had a, you know, kind of disagreeable habit of upstaging people. Uh, and if he had a two, she was in a two-shot with Roger, he would, like, you know, edge <laughs> back so that Roger had to, you know, turn away from Gary. So... So Roger, rather than complain to Altman, who basically left us to our own devices, he, mm -hmm. that's why he Altman hired so many improvisational actors right. for that movie. Roger uh, would, you know, they walked in, in the blocking. He, you know, walks in or Berghoff comes in, comes up to him, and Roger would step on his foot <laughs> and stand on his foot so he so he couldn't move <laughs> and play the scene. So you know, from the waist up, you can't see. And, and Gary, you know, couldn't upstage him. And, I, and, and Roger was a, was a savvy old actor and yeah. knew, knew how to protect himself. Right, right, right. I, I think about, because my, my background is, is and my background and my, and my current ground is so much improvisation and working with so many improv actors and just being able to, uh, to take a situation like that and say, what do we need right now? And, and also to surround myself with people that will help me with that. And then what ends up happening is you get someone like um, Altman who, who will hire everybody because everybody does work so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Altman did it, Richard Lester did it, a couple other directors, not many, you know, I mean, Spielberg does it a lot, I mean, he, he doesn't hire imp improvising actors, but he hires a lot of locals, right? which give his, his pictures a certain authenticity. Well, certainly and, Jaws. And certainly in Jaws, yeah. Right. And there's another thing for you in Jaws, where you, you didn't have a, a meeting with somebody, and you were... Uh, so my understanding is that you were you were just cast in the the movie, mm -hmm. and then while you were there, he said, "Was that how it worked?" It, it, it's, or you hadn't started filming yet. We hadn't started filming yet. The, mm -hmm. He said, "I'm doing this this script," and he sent me a copy of the script, mm -hmm. and, and I I wrote him a long note, single spaced, 
two-page memo about the script. Right. He asked you for that. Yeah, I, I have, still have my copy of some early draft of Jaws with Steve's scrawl on the cover saying, eviscerate it, exclamation <laughs> Oh, point. that's awesome. So I, so I did. Right. And then he said, you know, you, you, you should be there, help with the extras, do comedy, you know, lighten up the, the crowd scenes and, you know, and work as an actor. Yeah, you see that. a part for yourself. And I went through the script. I was counting lines like a good actor. <laughs> and part of Meadows was a good part. Right. So I, I decided to, uh, he said, well, I was thinking of hiring a woman for that. But uh, you, yeah, you can do it. You have to get, go through studio casting, but, you know, shouldn't be a problem. So I got cast as Meadows. Right. And then Stephen was uh, in pre-production meetings, uh, getting close to principal photography. Uh, in it was uh, April of '74. I'd written the memo in like January, so in, in late early April, I think I was already working on the Odd Couple, and I get a phone call on a Sunday morning saying it's from Stephen saying, "Hey, I'm at the Bel Air Hotel having." Breakfast with Zanuck and Brown, mm -hmm. and I showed them your memo, and they'd like to meet you and talk to you about doing a rewrite. Let me take a moment right there. What does that feel like right there? Like, well, at, at one level, it was like I got a call. It was like, oh, it's like, where do you get a writer on a Sunday morning? But it was my, you know, it was my friend, and I was at home. You know, just I, was, I would have been just reading the paper and having a bagel uh -huh. myself. So. I, it was a good, you know, Zanuck and Brown were big time. Right, Bel that's Air, what I mean. That's Bel, Bel Air Hotel, breakfast, right. why not? <laughs> so I, dro I drove out to the Bel Air Hotel, and we had uh -huh. bagels and lox and cream cheese, and we started talking and talking and talking about the script and about my memo and what I would do if I was doing it. And, and then it was like tea, by then it was like tea time, three or four or five o'clock, we had tea, and they would, we kept talking until it got dark. It was like six or seven when we finished. And they said, well, Stephen's going to Boston on Tuesday to start casting extras and doing pre-production. It was like two weeks before principal photography. Mm -hmm. We started shooting Jaws on May 2nd, 1974. So this would have been April 15th or April 13th, whatever that Sunday was. Okay. And I was... Oh, look at you and your dates, right? <laughs> dates. My well, God, I, mean, I, I, I wrote a book about it. So oh, that's I, right, yeah, the Jaws logs. Right, 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 right. I have, right. and I've, done, right. I've been doing interviews on it all summer. Of course, okay. So, so uh, um, uh, we, they, they called up and said, we're going to offer you, like, just, you know, you, we know you're going to be there for the acting thing, so we're going to hire you for one week for a dialogue polish at Writers Guild Scale, and you'll go with Stephen and start working on the script. Mm -hmm. Can you leave, you know, tomorrow? Right. And, you know, in those days, yeah, I can leave tomorrow. You know, I gave notice over right at that. Uh, at the Odd Couple? At the Odd Couple. I said, got to go, got a feature, mm -hmm. which everybody in television understood. Right. Uh, so we got on the plane, Steve and I, and he said the, uh, they rented me a house in Martha's Vineyard, so we're not staying at a hotel. There's extra, a lot of extra rooms now, so you can live there. We can talk about the script. And so we Where does Peter Benchley come in? Well, he, Peter was Peter was done by this time. So he he didn't he he, he just kind of passed it off to you. Well, what what a, the the chronology is that Peter had written this best-selling novel that Zanuck and Brown had snapped up in galleys because Brown had a lot of connections before in he was the publishing even... world. Yeah. Well, really. Yeah, they snapped it up in galleys, and then the book came out and it was a huge summer hit right. in 73. I read uh, I read it in high school. Yeah. I read it in in seventy three in high school. Right. And it was in my of co of all the classes it was in my English class, 
and oh, that, that Chicago Public School System. For you. <laughs> we didn't read. We didn't read any of the classics. Like we read that. We read Exorcist, and I think we read Amityville Horror. So it was like. Those were, um, but anyway, so that was '73. So, so, so in Dallas. So, the, 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 <coughs> so then Zanuck and Brown got it, and then they Joe Alves was working at Universal under contract, so they asked him to moonlight and do some sketches and storyboards mm -hmm. to convince the tower that they should put up the money to make the movie. Mm -hmm. And that worked out. And then Joe Owls was the first one hired on Jaws before Spielberg. And Joe Owls scouted locations. He found Martha's Vineyard. There's a whole long story there. Of course. And, and, uh, so, the, and so it came to pass that we were going to shoot at Martha's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. but we were going to stop in Boston and cast some local actors uh, for the, some of the bigger speaking parts. Mm -hmm. And we started deconstructing the script, which at that point was, uh, it had been, Benchley, as part of his sale of the novel, had negotiated a first draft screenplay deal. That's a way of sweetening the pot. Zanuck and Brown were stingy, but they could justify, you know, whatever they paid for the rights. Right. And plus another $75,000 for a screenplay that gave Peter Benchley more upfront money. Right. And he wrote a screenplay, but he was not a screenplay writer. He was barely a novelist. Um, but he was very, you know... He, he he got better and better and better at it. And the Jaws, book was great. The book was a great read and, and a, a really unique twist to it. And there's other things in the book that aren't that aren't that aren't in the Lo movie that yeah. are really uh, that are really juicy as well. Yeah, yeah. There was a whole <coughs> the, 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 the love story and yeah, all that sort yeah. of stuff. So that was uh, so we started going through the script, figuring out what we could keep, what we couldn't. At that point, we still didn't have a quint. We still didn't have a hooper. Now Dreyfus was a friend from improvisational days. He had been. What did he do in improv? I can't. I don't know. There was a company in L.A. called The Session, I, which was patterned after the committee. They would come up to San Francisco. Uh, Rob Reiner. Yes. Richard oh, Dreyfus. that's, right. that's Rob, right. Rob Reiner, Richard Dreyfus, Larry Bishop, who was Joey Bishop's son. Joey Bishop's son. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Larry Bishop. Must be. They were all. Guy. They were all classmates at Beverly Hills High. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> uh, a guy named David Arkin, who was I think a cousin of Alan. Mm -hmm. David Arkin played Sergeant Volmer in in um, in Mash. Oh, okay. He was, yeah, yeah. He was a improvisational actor. Yeah. So David was the fourth male in that troupe. There were two girls. It was a standard improv company. Four guys, two, two girls. Two girls, right? Girl. One of the women was the older girl was an actress named Marge Doucet, who worked in soap operas for years and mm -hmm. years and years after that. And the 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 sex object was a. Beautiful, funny babe, in, in, you know, in naively funny named Bobby Shaw, who was in Beach Black. She was a beach bunny. Oh, she was one of those. But uh, yeah. you know, she says, she she is the if you remember Little Annie Fanny and Playboy. Yes. She is physically the archetype that the artist. Just you saying that, I can't. I can't breathe. Oh my yeah. god! Like what guy is going there? Oh yeah, it's like oh Jesus Christ! Oh my there's god! A, there's a great Bobby Shaw story. She. Uh, she, I guess it was Beach Blanket Bingo. Uh, <laughs> the, the interconnectedness of all of us. Photographed by Floyd Crosby, David's father. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that David Crosby's father was a photographer. Cinematographer, one of the first Oscars ever. Really? Yeah, for Taboo in 1932. Oh, wow. That's uh, a whole other thing. I know you're about to tell another story. <laughs> oh, my God, Carl. Jesus Christ. David Crosby. Like, you wrote two books with David? Or yeah, one? Yeah, two. two books with yeah. David. 
Now that's another thing where it's like, how do we, whatever you're telling a story. I don't want I don't want to get away from the anyway. The, Bob, the, Bobby Shaw okay. was in Beach Bank and Bingo, and one of the other one of the, one of the character uh, Buster Keaton did one of his last you know late in life comedy bit cameos in in, in that movie. Mm-hmm. So when they had a Buster Keaton retrospective at the New York Museum of Modern Art, they did you know one of those fancy. Uh, Vintage film retrospective. Yes. They, they, uh, was Buster still alive? No, he was. He was. He was dead. But they got a few other. I think his ex-wife was still alive, mm-hmm. and, and it was like nineteen sixty-nine or seventy, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And Bobby Shaw called the producers and said, "I'm hurt that I wasn't invited, and I'm not on the dais." They said, "And, and you are." <laughs> And she said, "Bobby Shaw, I was I was Mr. Keaton's last leading lady, <laughs> and she was right in, in Beach by Cabingo. Right, right. And Crosby, I met Crosby. I was in San Francisco during mm-hmm. the, that period. Right. And in '66, the Birds were the house band at a go-go lounge up the street from the committee called mm-hmm. the Peppermint Tree. Mm-hmm. It was their last. Was Neil Young in that as no, well at the time? The, the Neil was at but doing Buffalo Springfield. Right. Oh, okay. Right. Right, 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 right. And Crosby was in the birds. That's right. Gwen That's right. And, you know. I just had a brain fart right there. Yeah. No. So the birds were the house band at the Peppermint Tree. Mm-hmm. And it was their last gig. They had recorded uh, Tambourine Man yeah. and. Um, was it Eight Mile other. High those guys? Was that Eight that, Mile they, High? The, the Eight Mile High was later, but it was, mm-hmm. their, their first hit was either Tambourine Man or um, Turn, Turn, Turn. Mm-hmm. So they recorded those. Songs, but they hadn't been released yet, mm-hmm. so they were still doing a bar band gig. Right. I mean, they were playing their repertoire for go-go dancers in boots and cages. And That's crazy. Fringe, fringe bikinis. <laughs> That's crazy. But they were up the street, so they would come watch us, and we'd go mm-hmm. up there to see the the, the go-go dancers. What a scene, man! Out. What a scene! Yeah. yeah. So, so go we, ahead. So we we were hanging. We started hanging out. Mm-hmm. And '66 and '68, when the show came to L.A., David had been kicked out of the Birds right. and was looking for a new band. And we, he would come and hang out at the committee because he always wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. So he would occasionally appear on stage with us in a sketch or two, right? And then take us out and get us high, and then right. uh, you know, and then was he a sales? Uh, was he a sailor back then too? Yeah, yeah, he was uh-huh. a sailor since he was a kid. Did you did you go sailing with yeah. him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And he just recently sold his boat, I think. Didn't I, he? It's been for sale for a while. I don't think it's sold yet. Oh, really? It, it, it's uh, uh, it's a tough sell because it's you know seven figure. Boat and right. it's it's a wooden sailing ship. So right. despite the fact it's been meticulously overhauled and repaired and right. has all the bells and whistles and stainless steel rigging and mm-hmm. teak decks and you know everything has been done a hundred percent. Right. But um, did he write wooden ships mm-hmm. for that boat? No, not for that boat. It was a it was a collaboration with the airplane. Uh huh. Oh, it was. Mm-hmm. That's a great song. Yeah. My God, that's a great song. Yeah. And his voice is so. So beautiful. When I was doing the autobiography, mm-hmm. I had occasion to listen to a acetate, mm-hmm. 33 and a third, of the school musical production that he starred in, in at Kate School in Santa Barbara, uh-huh. or Montecito, when he was a you know, preppy. Right, when he was a preppy. He was, he, a was preppy. A preppy. he was a preppy. <laughs> he was a preppy. Well, his father, his father came from, both his father and mother came from old money. Mm-hmm. And David, uh, his father was a, an award-winning cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And his mom was a bit of an artist. And his father cheated on her. Mm-hmm. Had an affair with a script girl. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then ran off with her. 
Oh, jeez, that's me. I can't believe that's rude. Everybody. Um, yes, go ahead. So, so, uh, anyway, so, so uh, um, but he always had a musical talent. Mm-hmm. And, and he, uh, and when I was researching the book, I found an instructor from Kate's school who knew him when he was 16, who said he had an incredible voice and said, I think I have a record of him somewhere. And mm-hmm. he played the record for me. And I think I'm... I don't know if I because in those days you couldn't copy it. I mean, it was, right. I think I made, may have made a cassette. But in any case, I heard him singing uh, some you know special material because it was you know a wealthy prep school and the guys who were in the music department were qualified you know composers, so they had written a, an original musical review for the cast you know, for the for the school. That's insane. So, it's also again I'm going back to this like there's another thing that you did. You wrote you wrote like all the different avenues that you've you've gone down all those different avenues that you've gone down what gives you that confidence what gave you that what what gives you that confidence well the, i mean <coughs> it, this is you know always characterizes a insecure business and the people in it as being insecure but the one thing i knew i could do since i was in high school was i knew i could write Right. I mean, I really knew that. I mean, I, I won a medal in high school. I was an editor of the College Humor magazine, mm-hmm. CCNY, and then I was in the journal. I wrote a weekly column at uh, Syracuse, and at Syracuse University, they had a very good journalism school. Later, became the Annenberg School of Communications. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then when I was there, it was just the the J School. Right. And it was on a par with the University of Missouri in Columbia. It was one of the great. So you have a degree journalism. in journalism? Yeah. As do I. Journalism and speech and dramatic arts, dual major. Um, and in the journalism department, they published a daily newspaper, right. which was actually, you know, semi-competitive with these two Syracuse daily papers mm-hmm. that published at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a weekly column that was uh, looked w- widely read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I got out of college, my first ever job was as a um, associate editor of a movie industry. Exhibitor trade publication in New York. You know, they, I just got the job through an ad agency, but uh, you know, it, it was in the business. You know, I was right. writing, rewriting press releases and writing reviews, trade reviews. And in those days, the motion picture trade press, there were about ten major publications based in New York, or with reporters in New York bureaus. I mean. Variety, Daily Variety, right. Hollywood Reporter, Cashbox, Show Business, Greater Amusements, uh, Billboard, uh, Independent Film Journal, which is uh, who what I wrote you? for, mm-hmm. uh, Quigley Publications out of Kansas City, who the, the serviced Midwestern distributors and, mm-hmm. and, and exhibitors. So if you were a star or a studio person selling a film in New York, one function, you know, you had to go to lunch or dinner or a screening with the trade press. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm just out of school and like my second day on the job, I'm having breakfast at Hampshire House with Wolf Mankiewicz, who was a prominent English writer. And then uh, I had lunch at Sardi's with, you know, somebody else. And then dinner at Luchow's with, with red buttons in a, for a movie. That, <laughs> Never got a dinner. And, and, <laughs> Never got a dinner. And, and I, was, I got paid nothing in terms of a salary. I was... Mm-hmm. It was it was stingy, by even by the standards of those days, but there was a lot of free lunches and dinners, 
and Hankin was my roommate. And I would call in New York. In New York, in yeah. New York. Uh, we'd been in college together, and we got an apartment together. Mm -hmm. and we, we got out, and and uh, I would call him up. I say, uh, Plaza Hotel, the Oak Room, telling me you're with the Fox Party. <laughs> And, you know, so he put on a tie and he'd come up and we'd, you know, we'd have hors d'oeuvres for dinner and uh -huh. whatever we could take in our pockets, you know. That would Did be. you live in the village at the time? Yeah. Uh -huh. I lived in Carmine Street. Uh-huh. Uh, apartment was 60 bucks a month. Third, <laughs> third, third floor walk up. Was Hankin doing, what was Hankin doing at that time? A single. He was doing a stand-up. Uh-huh. Oh, he was doing stand-up? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was working at, uh, he was doing a stand-up and a sketch review show called Mixed Nuts. Mm -hmm. Uh how many comedy groups have been called Mixed Nuts? How many? Just how many? Well, this was 61, so it was probably one of the early ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, who, was, who was it? Uh, I, I, that, Joan Rivers might have been in it. Mm -hmm. and there was somebody else. Was, was, was Second City, or was that when Second City came to New York as yeah. well around that time, yeah. too? Yeah. So that was... Uh, the committee, that was 62. Right. Because the, commi the committee... There were a couple of uh, Alan Meyerson, who had been a director at Second City, mm -hmm. and Irene Ryan or Reardon, as she, uh, right. as she was then known. Right. She was part of the committee as well. She, uh, yes. Right. But she was also she was an actress in the Second City Company, mm -hmm. and they <clears throat> they wanted to do more social satire and political satire than Second City was doing. Oh, okay. So they they uh, basically said, let's start our own theater. So they looked around the country where where could they go? You know, L.A. and New York were you know, L.A. Second City had been in L.A. with Larry Tucker and Paul Mazursky. Yes, that company. Yes, and they had, they had not succeeded. No, they, they well, they haven't there. succeeded anywhere but Chicago. Yeah, and and, and uh, so they they uh, they finally decided on San Francisco. Went went to San Francisco, you know, with audition tapes from of Second City shows that they had done and mm -hmm. a prospectus and a budget, and they found a, a venue and raised the backing and put on a, a show. And it was a hit from day one mm -hmm. and, you know, ran 10, 11 years. Right. It's, it's also about them being at the right place at the right time. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, was, like it was San Francisco, San Francisco Berkeley. It was the free right. speech movement. Right. It was just one of the, among the backers were Jessica Mitford and her husband and uh, Herb Gold, the novelist. There was a right. lot of San Francisco intelligentsia. Right. Uh, or, you know, intellectual bourgeoisie and Berkeley, and, you know, radicals and who had money. And th that was our... What a great idea, though, to go over there, like yeah. a geographic, the geographic hub and all the center of creativity at that moment, and on, was, in a different way than it was in New York and in Chicago. Oh, right. It was the, what, what happened with Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll starting in 63, mm -hmm. and the committee was opened in, I guess, March or April of 63. April 10, 1963. Okay. Because <laughs> it's my birthday, April 10. <laughs> That's how I know. It's April 10, 1963. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the, uh, when, when the company opened... And in, in the next five years, it was the very first time in American cultural history that something, the, a cultural trend began on the West Coast and filtered East. You know, for 150 years, it had been Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and, you know, Boston, New York, and Philadelphia were the right. intellectual hubs. That's where publishing was. Yes. That's, that's where novels were, were printed. That's where the theater, the theater right. was in New York. <laughs> Everything right. else was a road company. Mm -hmm. and, and San Francisco had always been a good theater company. They always, theater town, they always had two legit theaters on Geary Street that played, you know, national touring companies, where L, as L, L.A. had nothing. You right. Know, was, theater was dead in this town. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was just this... Amazing locus when the cultural shift 
occurred, and all of a sudden we were where it was at, you know. Right. And, and I was proselytizing, you know, acid and, and grass, which were the just breaking out of the ghetto of jazz music sure. and, and, and uh, Del Close. And <laughs> That's fine. I can't believe that we've gone this far without talking about Del Close, but certainly it's that. It's okay too. with me. Del, I'm, yeah. I am I am in from the feet of clay school mm-hmm. of Del Close. I mean, I, I I worked with him for a couple of years, and I saw him at his uh, at some of his extremes. Yeah, no, and, I, and he, was, I, I, and he was a difficult guy, and a, a great self promoter, right. and he married us. You know, Charna was uh, you know a devoted to building his legend. Yes. So Howard Johnson's book is actually, although Howard is an unabashed fan, yes, he um, does a pretty good job of researching Dell's different, you know. Well, I know Howard backwards. because I Howard and I were studying under Dell at the same time. Okay. So I understand, like, like how all uh, how Howard, uh, I, I was there watching Howard. We were all part of Dell, yeah. but I never looked at Dell, and uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I never looked at Dell as anything other than a teacher and a director that I had. So I never saw him as anything. He other was a good than performer. That. I mean, he he was. A, I saw him. In, I saw him do Macbeth uh, in Chicago. Yeah, and that he was always great. liked. He liked to think of himself as a uh, as a Chicago actor. He was very proud of being a Chicago actor. Right, right, and. He won the Joe Jefferson Award more than once, I think. Uh, uh, he was also in uh, the uh, Chicago 7 mm-hmm. uh, play that was in Chicago right. as well. Yeah, that, that was a good performer. He was, and he was old school. I mean, he was, you know, he had done the Barter Theater in Virginia as, mm-hmm. an, as an apprentice stock company. And right. Had done a lot of stuff. Anyway, he, he was, uh, but when I worked with him, he was, you know, erratic and a, right. ju- a junkie and difficult and crazy and uh, dangerous. And, 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 and not in a funny way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. And at that time, the, the, the culture there must have bred that sort of yeah. and encouraged that sort of oh, thing yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, there was behavior that, you know, earlier or later would have been you know, classified as, you know, kind of psychopathic. Well, it seems like he, his path isn't any different than like an Andy Dick, Andy Dick's path or something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing where you go, how much longer can you do this before somebody goes, grabs you and says, don't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, Del, and, and because of Dell's reputation as a teacher and because of, I mean, you know, he, they brought him to New York to coach the Saturday Night Live right. cast and, you know, Belushi and Aykroyd, you know, worshipped him and, you know, a whole lot of people. Anyway, um, I worked with him. He was great, but not that great. Well, he certainly, he wasn't, it seems to me that a major part of what it is that you you do is all about people being open and being inviting of you and being part of an ensemble, and Dell wasn't like that. Although in his classes, (laughs) you know, he he did stress. He stressed that. It's different to stress it than it is to live it. Yeah, I mean, when when he was in the company, he was pretty crazy, and when uh, when he directed the company, he... I mean, we, we we got on. We did the show anyway, you know? right? <laughs> and we did develop some good material under mm-hmm. his tutelage. But then, you know, I value my association with him. I would not repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna. We're gonna stop there. I just want to tell you what a great what a great time it was to talk to you. Okay. I mean, I don't know.
If you want, is there anything else you're going to have? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's, that's, that's about it. If you have enough. Oh, my God. It's just been so fun. Okay. I thank you so much. Yeah, I really, really thank you a lot for that. I was going to tell you a quintessential Dell story of, of which they told many. Uh-huh. Um, you know the one about him? Um, uh, he had an apartment upstairs over one of us, I forget who. In, uh, in San Francisco? In San Francisco, mm-hmm. in North Beach. Mm-hmm. And they heard Dell pacing upstairs. You can use the old Victorian, you know. Right. Like, like this, it was a fourplex or a sixplex. Uh-huh. And they would hear Dell pacing and then they would hear, whoop, thump. Uh-huh. And it would be quiet for a while and then he'd start pacing again and hear, whoop, thump. So after a few of those, they went up, or even I think Dell came down to share. He said, I found it. I found a cosmic portal. I, if I... If I, sit, if, I, if, I, if I walk three times in a circle and say my mantra, I experience bliss consciousness that's so strong, it, I, I, it knocks me out. I know I, that's, that's what you've been hearing. I've been falling to the floor in this state of exaltation. You've know, you got to come up. I'll show you. I'll show you how it works. It's, it's right on There's a mandala. It's a, a pattern on the, the carpet. In my room. Everybody traipses upstairs, takes a seat on the couch. Dell starts walking around in circles. He does the, th- the three things. He does a yogi pose. And his eyes roll up in his head and he falls over. Kaplan. Somebody notices that there's a, a lamp with a cord uh-huh. that goes under the rug uh-huh. that's frayed, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> bare, bare wires exposed. <laughs> <laughs> and when he stood on this power spot, he was basically getting 110 bucks. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Which was knocking him out. He'd fall over, break the contact, and live. <laughs> but he would have this, you know, because of everything else he was on at the moment, he would, you know. Right, 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 right. Everything, the universe aligned in that one moment for him. Oh, that's hysterical. Oh, my God. Typical Dell. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the ADD Comedy Podcast. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on ADD Comedy, you can visit our website at www.theaddcomedytour.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ADD Comedy Pod. If you're in the Los Angeles area and you're interested in taking a class with Dave, you can find that information at his website at www.davidrosowski.com. Sound services for the ADD Comedy Podcast was brought to you by Post Apocalyptic.